Welcome to Multifamily AP 360, the show where we discuss 360-degree views on mindset, passive, and active multifamily investment. If you're looking for tips and strategies, or just want to learn from the experiences of others, both good and bad, then listen on. This is Multifamily AP 360 with your host, Ramakrishna Chunchu. Today's our guest is Kyle Ruth from Empire Estates. Welcome, Kyle. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Sure. Thank you very much, Kyle. A little bit about Kyle. Kyle started buying real estate in 2020. He was able to go from zero to 70 units in two years without using any type of syndication or joint ventures. At 26, he left his W2 job. Now at 28, he continues to scale his real estate business and coach others to do the same with little money on, into it. His goal is to help others understand their full potential. This can be accomplished through many different ventures. For Kyle, it was real estate investing. While Kyle does enjoy talking about real estate, most of all, he enjoys talking about the importance of daily habits, discipline, overcoming obstacles, and building a life worth living. So with that, Kyle, you want to add anything to your background? No, I think that's a pretty good overview. Um, currently live in Wisconsin right now. Buying small multifamily and single families, but no, that's a good, good start for sure. Awesome. So building a life worth living. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think a lot of people, and especially for me, and I went through it, I think a lot of people get stuck kind of in the rat race of, of living there. They're just going through the days, going through the motions, not really understanding the direction on where they want to go in life. And I'm guilty of it even now. But I think when we can have a better understanding of why we're all here, and that's different for every individual, but I believe our purpose is not just to go through the motions. We have a purpose and we're meant to live out that purpose. And that's through daily actions, the right actions, the right habits. And I just think far too many people, and this is why I kind of got into coaching, is far too many people just let their life pass with no direction, no will to live, no reason to create. And I think it's tough to see. I mean, I've seen it in my family, my friends. And for me, I knew it wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. And since I've really taken this purpose-driven life and real estate is one of the vehicles that I've chosen, I think life becomes more enjoyable. Thank you. So what steps help you to find your direction or find your purpose? Yeah. So what worked for me was legitimately just that, is taking a step towards something of interest. So for me, right out of the gate, it was real estate because I didn't want to work for someone for the rest of my life. And it was everyone has an interest, but they're, the things that stop them from seeing out those interests are fears of judgment from other people. If they're good enough, if they have the capabilities to execute those interests, it's all of these insecurities that surround people where they don't take the action. So just taking the first step towards an interest that you have. I think if you can just keep doing that, take one step, learn from the mistakes, adjust, take another step and keep following kind of your initial interest line. I think eventually you'll end up coming to a place where you found what really makes you tick. How did you find interest in real estate? When I was going through college, my about my junior year, I started reeling a lot of real estate books like Grant Cardone, Brandon Turner, uh, David Green, just reading a lot of books, taking in tons of information. I knew I didn't want to work for someone forever. And every business venture or thing that I went to look at always somehow led back to real estate, whether it was retail, whether it was manufacturing, and they all owned the buildings. Everything came back to real estate. And as I started working, so my background is in construction management. 
as I started work outside of college, that interest just kept growing. And I would look at a property, not like, oh, that'd be great to live in, but rather like, oh, that property could probably cash flow and appreciate in the tax benefits. And when I ended up buying my first property, the interest was there. It was sparked. And then as you just keep going down that path, it just grows and grows and grows. Awesome. So how did you grow your portfolio from zero to 70 units within two years? Can you elaborate on that? So first one I house hacked, I think that's an extremely undervalued method, especially when you first get started. And the reason, whether it's a duplex or a four unit, three unit, whatever it is, I think house hacking is the best investment you could buy for your first one. It's low risk. You can get good interest rates, low down payment. It's perfect. Takes away your largest expense. And that's what I did for my first one. But you can only house hack so fast, right? You can only do it every six to 12 months. You can't, it would take a long time to house hack your life into 70 units. It would just take a while. So I house hacked my first two properties. And then after that, I came across some understanding of uh, raising capital from a sense of like family and friends. I didn't start a syndication. I didn't start a large fund. I simply wanted some additional funds for renovation or down payment. So I raised a small pool of funds from hard money and private lenders. And from there, I found that I could buy a property that needed work, buy it, we renovated it. And then after we were done renovating it, just the way we were able to run our numbers, forced appreciation, we did cash out refinance, paid back our investors, but now we have an asset that cash flows. And we were doing that about once every two to three months. So, and again, we were buying between single family and four units. So to get to 70 units every other month, it's going to take forever to get to 70 units again. So what I ended up doing is I'm a big tracker. Like I, I focus on data and I knew that we were putting in about 10 offers to get one. So we were volume company. We like to offer on a lot of properties to get a good deal. We're not going to make a property work. We're not going to move the numbers around just so it works. We're going to run our numbers and we're going to offer at volume to make sure we get good deals. So for me, I was like, well, we're getting about 10%. We're getting like 10 to 15% of all of our deals. So I said, in order for us to do one a month, we need to bring people on and we need to increase the amount of offers we put out. So we increased it to about 20 offers a month. We started getting one every single month and it just kind of compounded from there. After 2020, that's what we did. We added about 30 units to our portfolio. And then last year, we added about another 40 by just doubling our numbers again. We went from offering on 20 to 30, and then we were getting two to three properties a month. And again, we were bringing in a team of acquisition specialists, project managers. We were utilizing property managers, and we were just kind of able to scale from there. And we had some properties go well, had some not go well, and that's just the reality of real estate. And that's basically an overview of what kind of happened. We were using private funds, paying them back, renovating properties, and we just kind of kept compounding our numbers. Thank you for sharing that. I will touch base, like streaming the process, like acquisition to, you know, managing and all the stuff. Uh, before that, how do you source the deals? Yeah, so we bought almost, and I say we, because my wife now helps run a lot of the company, but we buy almost probably 80% of our properties right off the MLS. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. Well, there's definitely low-hanging fruit out there. People just don't know, A, where to look or how to offer on them. So when we're, when we're looking at properties, we're not only looking at fixing the flooring, the paint, the bathroom, the bedroom, the kitchen, whatever it is. We actually look at, can we add a bedroom? Can we add a bathroom? Can we add a garage? So not only do we look at, can we make what's already there better, but can we add value by adding bedroom, bathroom, garage. And that was really important for us. So we'll look at a, on the MLS, a two bed, one bath at 1100 square feet. 
well, we know that we can fit either another bedroom or another bathroom in there. So where other people are like, well, this deal just doesn't work for us. It's like, yeah, because you're not looking at it the right, you know? So for us, it was about looking at deals that other people aren't. We were looking at days on market, how has there been price drops and the square footage to bed to bath ratio. Yeah. 80% of our deals come off the MLS. We also get properties from wholesalers or off market. Sometimes we just bought one off Facebook marketplace. So we're all over the place, but we basically built our business off the MLS. Got it. Thank you. So are you focusing on only one market or multiple markets? And what is the you know, price range and you know, what is typical you know, renovation timeline? We are 100% in the Midwest right now. We are looking at certain markets outside of the Midwest, like some areas down in Florida. But yeah, right now we're in the Midwest, mostly involved in the Wisconsin area. So Green Bay, Milwaukee. And yeah, our price points, let's say we go buy a single family home there. We're buying properties at 50, 60,000. We're putting 10 to 20 grand into them. They're renting for 11 to 1200 and we're cash flowing, you know, two, 300 bucks a month. And we're able to do it at volume. You know, you go buy a duplex in this area, it might be closer to, well, a quick example. We just bought a duplex, an upper lower duplex for 85000 We put $15,000 into it, appraised out at one sixty, and we're making like 850 bucks a month on it. And those are everywhere. They're everywhere out here, but people just don't know how to look for them. They don't know how to offer on them. They don't know how to structure and underwrite their deals. Not that they don't necessarily know how to, but they just, I think some people overanalyze and under execute. If anything, we probably over execute and under analyze just because we know the market so well. But yeah, that's just kind of some quick examples on what we're seeing here. Got it. So from selecting market or selecting properties, what is your criteria? One of the metrics we look at is our purchase to rent ratio. So when I first started reading books, everyone was talking about the 1% rule, but that's kind of outdated at this point in time, especially in the single family, small multifamily market in the Midwest and where I'm investing. So we're looking at 1.5 to 2% rule here. So if, if we're going to buy a property, let's say at 100,000 and we're all in at 100,000, we want to make sure we're at least bringing in 1500 to $2,000 in total rents. That's just kind of a quick metric that we use to begin to like analyze and underwrite probably the quickest way that we just look at a property look at what market rents are what is our rent to purchase ratio and that's our starting point for hey do we like this market or not thank you for sharing that let's come to lending point of view so you're purchasing like like 30 to 40 units per year so how exactly that working you know from lending point of view you need to bring some equity also right so how can you share me a little bit more about that so just as far as the, let's just say deal flow from a capital standpoint, like kind of in a way in which is more utilized, like this term is more utilized in like syndications, but we also, we kind of do some capital stacking where we will take a, you know, a property that needs 20% down and we go raise the funds and we use their money for 20% down. And then we'll go to family friends, raise another 10,000 for renovations. We've done that. But right now we're kind of at a place where our private investors trust us enough that they will just fund the whole deal based on our underwriting. So 
We present them with the deal. We say, hey, this is what we're looking at. And again, we have a very strict criteria. When we submit our package to them, if they accept it, which they haven't, because also I'm not going to submit a deal or go after a deal that I don't want. So when we submit it to them, they give us a thumbs up, they funnel. And then right now we're utilizing a lot of commercial lenders. So we're locking in at, oh, anywhere between 20 to 30 year amortization. We're getting like six, six point seven five to seven. 0.25% interest rate. And, you know, we're still cash flowing. And one of the things that I tell people is when the, where these interest rates are today, I think people are looking too close to what's happening today, not of the future of five to 10 years. So for me, if I lock in on a 30 year note at 7% interest, let's say, and I'm cash flowing 200 bucks today, I'm okay with that all day because I know in five to 10 years, not only will I pay down our loan amount, but I'm also going to have at some point, And again, if everyone knew when the interest rates were going to go back down, we would be millionaires, but I don't like, I don't know when they're going to go back down, but at some point in my life, I'm 28 years old. God forbid that I keep living for five, 10 years, but the interest rates will drop. And when they do, I'm going to do a rate term refinance. I'm going to lower that rate and my cash flow will go through the roof. So one of the things I just don't think it's talked about enough, especially in the real estate industry, is that if you can get into a deal today in today's market it, and it cash flows today, over time, it's only going to get better. Rent only goes up. Your principal pay down only gets smaller and rates will drop. So when rates drop, you refinance, your cash flow increases, the value of the property will keep going up. So we're not waiting. We're okay with a little bit less cash flow. We're still getting good lending structures that we're okay with. And yeah, so we're just kind of, that's our motion right now. Will it change? Maybe. But right now, that's kind of the direction we built our business and we're going to keep building it. Got it. Thank you. So you guys are presenting your offers to private lenders and just, you know, not sharing any equity, right? Yeah, there's no equity partners. It's 100% owned by myself and my wife. So, Got it. So let's move towards third part. Like how exactly are managing these properties? Good question. So we use property managers. And the reason we use property managers, not that I think we couldn't run a business as a property manager, but for us, when you're scaling, you need to understand what, not even when you're scaling, even if you were just buying consistently, you need to understand what you're good at. And what I'm good at is getting the deals, renovating the deals, and moving on to the next one. So acquisition, renovation is my strength. Property management, I was okay paying 8 to 10% of the net rent, yeah, of the rent total to a property manager that would be managing the property. I didn't want the calls from tenants. And again, when people are like, well, look, think about all the money that you're losing out on. My time is better spent if a property rents for a thousand bucks and they're getting a hundred bucks. I can just in the time that they spend towards that unit, I can make more money than up on that hundred dollars. And that's by scaling. If I had to self-manage all these properties myself, I almost guarantee I wouldn't be to the place where I am because I just a lack of time or I would have a much bigger team. I'd have higher overhead. So right now we use third-party management, not that we won't ever start our own once it gets to a certain place, but yeah, we utilize third-party management, one from like a strictly a time perspective. Got it. So all of your properties managed by one property management company or multiple? Multiple. And I would advise anyone to use, if you have a sizable portfolio, to use multiple. And the reason being is that I think, well, first of all, there's not many good property managers out there. 
So you want to vet them the best they can, you can beforehand. So before getting into signing a PMA, which is a property management agreement, you want to make sure you know what their fee structure is. You want to make sure you understand the way they run their business. How is their accounting? How do they run their income statements? All of that stuff. And they all run it different. They all use different, you know, at Folio, all these different online services. And depending on how they report, it's completely different. And I would never know if I didn't use multiple different ones. Like you don't know what you don't like if you only have one property manager. And so we use many different ones so that we can kind of almost leverage one against each other to be like, Hey, have you guys ever thought about, you know, marketing this for rent? Like I have a management company that doesn't market it for rent before it's actually vacant. I have another management company that I asked, Hey, before this thing actually goes vacant, it tells us in 30, 60 days they're moving out. Let's put it up for rent. Even if there's some renovations that need to be done, let's put it up for rent. So they all have their strengths. And if you can understand different strengths, you can maybe bring those pieces to your third-party management company and give them ideas that one will help them as a business, but also help the performance of your properties. Okay. So what are the top three things you would look in property management company before hiring them? The most important one, and it's completely overlooked, is their fee structure outside of just what they charge up front for their rent. So people will say, yeah, we charge 10%. Fine, everyone charges 10% or 8% or 12%. I wanna know what your tenant placement fee, what is your lease renewal fee, what is your, I had a, a guy quote me 25% markup on renovations that he does. So he would go in, he'd do a renovation for me, but he'd put 25% markup on. I've never seen that before. Personally, everyone else that I work with here are 10% or less. So understanding their fee structure underneath of what they charge initially, because there's always this fine print. So that I would say that's number one. Number two is less about a lot of people get, you'll say, how many units do you manage? And people say a thousand. Just because they manage more units doesn't mean they're a better management company. So for me, I would one ask them, how many units do they manage? And if they say a thousand or 500 or 200, like if someone says I manage 200, I ask them, do you think that you're capable of keeping up with the production to continue to scale? Because every property manager I've talked to says they're the best. And I'm at the point now where I talk to property managers and they're like, yeah, we have the best technology. We run the best. We're very operationally sound. And I'm just like, yeah, but everybody says that. So one, understanding their fee structure. Two is asking them how many units they manage. And also, is their business set up to scale the way you want to scale? And three, I would ask them if they have the capabilities to do improvements and repairs in a timely manner. Because... You want to make sure that your tenants are taken care of and your property is taken care of in a timely manner. Because if your tenants aren't taken care of, they are going to stop caring as much about your house and your asset. So those are the three things that I would say to ask initially. Good stuff. So would you share any best experience so far? I think for me, the best overall like experience and things I've learned since building my business is kind of put blinders on in your lane. I think there's so much information. There's an abundant amount of information and people out there providing advice saying, this is how you should buy a multifamily. You should do syndication. You should do single family. You should do land development, whatever it is. There's everyone pushing their own what's worked for them. And that's one of the things that I want people to understand is what's worked for other people. So when you find what you want to go into, put your blinders on, become laser focused, Find the top two or three people doing that in your industry and keep learning from them. I mean, there's a thousand people out there doing syndications. There's a thousand people out there doing small multifamily. And if you're listening to so many different people, you get kind of sidetracked very easily. Like, oh, I should do this with my common areas or I should do this with my parking lots. Oh, I should do this with this. 
and it just gets overwhelming. So for me, what's worked is I've found the top two or three people that I really enjoy listening to. I became laser focused on buying between single family and small multifamily. I've created systems and methods within that. And I've just kind of kept my laser focus on until I get to a place like, will I ever do syndication or multifamily or storage units? I don't know, maybe. But for now, I'm very operationally sound in what we're doing. I have a good understanding of the direction I'm going and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying building the team. So I guess long story short, if I were to give any piece, it would be just stay focused. Find the top two or three people in the industry that you like. Listen to them. Get to masterminds that they're involved in. And uh, just don't get too spread out because it can get overwhelming and it'll lead to inaction. So would you also share any challenging experience so far? There's definitely plenty of challenging stories. I think for me, starting off, the most challenging piece was underestimating construction costs. And it got me in a few binds at times. So underestimating your construction budget, if you think it's 30, just say it's 40, because it's probably going to be when it's all said and done and getting multiple different opinions on the improvements that you're going to do. Do the improvements you're doing yield a return that makes sense? You know, does if the house and you paint it uh, gray and but the yellow was fine, is that going to yield a huge return for the money that you have? It's things to think about, you know, it, just because something doesn't look great or you don't love the countertops or you don't love the color of the trim, you need to ask yourself, this is an investment. This is not about what I want to live in. And that's what I did. I would look at properties like, oh, we should do this because this would be cool. Well, it's like, Kyle, you're not the one living here. It doesn't matter. So we would put extra money into things because I thought it was going to be cool. But at the end of the day, it's an investment that renters are living in. And a lot of times it didn't yield a result that I wanted from a fund aspect. So the lesson I learned is just put more money towards what you think improvements are going to be. And don't overanalyze the way the property looks from a sense of make sure it meets your market criteria. But don't start switching countertops out with the same material just because you don't love the way they look. Got it. Thank you. Any personal habits that are helping you to be successful? Yeah, is waking up consistently every morning. I wake up between four and five o'clock every morning. I read, I journal, and I work out. I do that seven days a week. You know, on Saturday and Sunday, sometimes I wake up an hour later. But in general, that's what I do almost every single day. And it starts my day off, my mind sharp. I've read a personal development book and... Um, I usually read like 10 to 20 pages in the morning and it's just consistently. I, I don't sit there and read a book for three hours. I just read 10 to 20 pages to get my mind fired and I journal. I just write down all my thoughts, all my good, bad insecurities. Everything goes on paper and then it's just time to execute. So yeah, from a habit standpoint, my morning routine is critical to my personal success. Awesome. Any books that impacted my life? I got a pile of books next to me. The most recent book that I've read is called Slight Edge. And it's an amazing book. It's about how basically how you can create an edge every day in your life by utilizing small things where when you feel like you don't want to do it, just go do it. When you feel like you don't want to make that phone call, just do it and keep data points. Like a lot of times for me, very often the exact same thing that I don't want to do is the very thing that is going to move me forward. And every single time I do the thing that I don't want to do, I walk out of it and I'm like, man, that was awesome. So it's a great book. It's by Jeff Olson. It's a great book. I would recommend that to anyone. Awesome. How can listeners can connect with you, Kyle? Yeah, the best way to connect with me is my Instagram, which is KJ underscore root. Uh, I put a lot of free content out there. Shoot me a DM if you want to talk. I love meeting people and talking. So yeah, my Instagram, KJ underscore root, be the best place to reach out. Awesome. Thank you very much, Kyle. Yeah, thanks.
That's the end of this episode of Multifamily AP 360, but we'd love to continue to help you on your journey. Head to ushacapital.com slash podcast to join our email list for more tips and strategies. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. This is Multifamily AP 360 with Ramakrishna Chuntu. We'll see you next time.